Parables either solve a problem that was at hand or they answer a question. And today we're going to look at Jesus' parable of the wise and the foolish builders. I want to say to begin with, there are two builders in Jesus' story, but there are about 275 builders in the sound of my voice right now because life is building. If you're alive, you're building. You're building something. Whenever you're alive, you are building. You are builders. I'm a builder. You're a builder. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. That'll be the beginning of this parable. But as you're turning there, let me give you a bit of a context that swirled around the parable when Jesus gave it. By that point in Jesus' ministry, crowds had been attracted to him because both his words that were authoritative and his works, which were miraculous. And so in some measure, there were crowds building wherever Jesus went by this point in his earthly ministry. And they were gravitating with curiosity toward a certain theme of Jesus' teachings by this point. And the theme that they were finding captivating was the message of the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The kingdom of heaven was at hand, and they were glad to hear that, but they had a burning question in their minds. And the burning question in their minds when they thought about the prospect of the kingdom of heaven being at hand was this. Am I righteousness? Am I righteous enough, rather, to get into it? And how do you define the righteousness necessary in the Old Testament prophecies by the prophets when they said you must be righteous to enter the Messiah's kingdom? How would they know if they had enough such righteousness to get into the kingdom? And so these were their questions when they came to Jesus that day and he told the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. Of course, the righteousness that the first hearers of this parable knew about was pharisaical righteousness. The righteousness that the Pharisees purported and taught didn't live, but they taught these things. They set a standard, basically, the Pharisees did, that if your outside looked good, it didn't matter about your inside. If what was visible measured up to the laws of the Old Testament and the Pharisees' laws added to the laws of the Old Testament, if you had an outward veneer that looked okay, then you were okay. But what went in your head, what went on in your heart, what went on when no one else was looking except God, that didn't really uh, matter or factor into the Pharisees' teaching of this righteousness. And so the average Jew who knew that they were dirty on the inside, inconsistent in their love and obedience to God, had burning questions. I know I'm not perfect as the law requires of me, but how much righteousness is required righteousness for me to get into this kingdom, Jesus, that you are teaching us is at hand, it's near. And by the way, the kingdom was near then because the king was near. The king was near to the crowds, and and being on earth and being near to the crowds made that his kingdom was near. And so a lot of all of this swirled around righteousness. Righteousness defined by the Pharisees versus righteousness defined by Jesus. It swirled around righteousness. What level of righteousness does God require for a Jew or a Gentile to get into Jesus' coming kingdom? And Jesus set the bar extremely high. Jesus, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, we won't go into all the verses, but let me summarize. In Matthew 5, 17 to 48, that's a big chunk, Jesus taught that God's standard of righteousness required respect for God's law, 
that murder included murderous thoughts, that forgiveness of others was huge, that adultery included lust, that the permanency of marriage was to be respected, that a person's word was to be their bond, and that non-resistance was to be the order of the day and love people, even persons who are your enemies. That's what Jesus taught as being his standard, the necessary standard of righteousness for anybody to get into his kingdom. That's a very high bar, but that's not all. We have to contrast this, that the Pharisees lowered the bar of righteousness, particularly for themselves, because they didn't practice what they called the nation to preach. And they said, basically, if nobody sees bad, you're all right. Nobody knows what you're thinking that's evil. Don't worry about your thinking. And so what Jesus was saying in contrast to the Pharisees who said, have clean hands, Jesus said, have clean heart. Jesus was looking for not an x-ray of hands, though. He was looking for an x-ray of the heart. And so he is still today. And so the Pharisees were also judges of themselves. That's handy, isn't it? If you're a judge of yourself, you can change the laws, you can change the stipulations, you can change the level required. The Pharisees judge themselves. No one else judged the Pharisees. Christ taught that God judges the heart, and with him there is no circumstantial evidence, because God knows everything, God sees everything, and God is holy. And so there were a lot of contrasts between the righteousness of the Pharisees and the righteousness of Jesus. To summarize more of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' primary teaching on God's required righteousness, in Matthew 6, the whole chapter, and then through the 12th verse of chapter 7, Jesus said back then, and he says this morning, that when it comes to adequate righteousness, it involves unseen financial offerings to God. Not to give monetarily to God so everybody could see you and cheer you on. It involves unseen prayer in your prayer closet, forgiving others. It involves fasting. It involves money as being your servant and not your master. And not being anxious, but being calm in the control of God of your life. God's kind of righteousness involves a personal holiness without hypocrisy and a prudence in witnessing the truth to others. It involves a persistence in prayer and a confidence in prayer and treating others well, especially when they can't treat you well. These were the standards that Jesus taught, and these are the standards which Jesus still teaches. And if the Jews who were coming to hear that first parable on the builders were coming to Jesus in some way hoping him to lower the righteousness bar from where the Pharisees had pegged it, they were very shocked. Because he didn't lower the bar, he elevated the bar. And Jesus set aside as insufficient the teachings of the Pharisees as a basis for entering the kingdom. It almost was like he said, everything that taught you about how to get into the kingdom, discard it. I'm going to teach you about what's really the kind of righteousness required to get into my kingdom. And that is why Jesus said of his way versus their way in Matthew 5, 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And after laying all this out, Jesus invited his listeners that day to enter the kingdom, watch it, by having faith in his words. 
having faith that what he taught them, what he preached, was essential and true. And Jesus likened all the truth that he had been sharing and preaching about the standard of getting into heaven to a narrow gate. Jesus equated what he was teaching to a narrow gate. And in Matthew 7, 13, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. Christ wanted them to know back then, and Christ this morning wants you to know today that his gate is narrow, but it leads to the kingdom. And the Pharisees' gate, or we could say organized religion's gate, is wide, but it leads to destruction. And so the bottom line of this parable, before we even look at the parable, is that faith in Jesus' words will lead to life. But obedience to the Pharisees' words would lead to destruction. They're oil and water. The teaching of the Savior and the teaching of religiosity, organized religion, are oil and water. They don't mix. They won't mix. They can't mix. They're different. And so it was to these particular questions about what is personal righteousness and how much of it do you need to have to get into Jesus' kingdom, it was these questions that prompted the parable that we're going to look at this morning, the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. So let's look at the actual parable by turning to Matthew 7, beginning at verse 24 and reading through verse 29, Matthew 7, 24 to 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand." And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them with one as having authority, and not as their scribes. Jesus pictured his first hearers to this parable story as builders, And Jesus understands each of us in the sound of my voice also as being builders. To be alive is to be a builder. To spend time and energy and effort is to build. And the question becomes back then, upon what foundation were they building? And the question this morning for the man in the pulpit and the persons in the pew, upon what foundation are all of us building? We all are building, as I said, we are building our spouses, we are building our children, we are building our grandchildren, we are building our reputations, we are building our relationships, we are building our own personal character, we are building this local church, and all of us, intentionally or unintentionally, are building our legacy. It takes effort, every day is effort, and more specifically, effort according to either a considered or to an unconsidered blueprint. Are you building according to a considered blueprint for your life, or are you just letting it happen, rolling with the punches, blowing loose in the wind, and building your life on an unspecified foundation? That's a key question. 
For one blueprint either is drafted in heaven and followed for God's glory, or the other blueprint is cooked up here on earth in one's own heart for one's own glory. And all the building that all of us are doing is gradual building. And then one day, sometime quite unexpectedly due to a heart attack or a massive stroke or a car accident or a murder, our building stops when we perhaps thought we had a lot more time to build. (laughs) Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, has this on her tombstone. I love it. This is what's on Billy Graham's wife's tombstone. End of construction. Thanks for your patience. (laughs) She understood. Ruth Graham Bell understood that her life was building something. And she understood that when she went to heaven and died physically, that the construction opportunity on earth was over for her. The construction was completed. And she thanked those who knew her for their patience during the time she was under construction. And so when we think about it, life is building and all of us are builders. And in general terms and specific terms, the Lord Jesus Christ are given to builders. His words are given to builders in his Bible, the book. And his words, Jesus' words, are not ordinary words. They're not casual words. They're not take it or leave it words. Jesus' words are fork in the road. Jesus' very words spoken force those who hear them to do something and to be something. These words of Christ call those who hear them to decision. Not indifference or passivity. The words of Jesus call people to responsibility. And they call those who hear his words to accountability. Jesus' words are not benign. Jesus' words are hand grenades in the heart of those who hear them. And so in this parable, let's say it again, Jesus likens his hearers and us to builders. And Jesus pointed out that every builder has to select their own foundation The choice is very important because bad storms were coming back then and bad storms are coming still today. Adversity of every kind is part and parcel of the normal life on earth in a sin-fallen world. Adversity is par for the course. And adversity of every kind would be like high winds in Jesus' parable and heavy rains and, and flooding floods and they would reveal the quality of the foundation upon which the builder had built his house. And logically, of course, the foundation selected of rock would make for a stable house when the tempest and the storm gale winds blew and the rains fell and the floods went high. But building houses on sand is foolhardy. And when those same storms of adversity and difficulties and floods and rains and high winds came, that house collapses under duress. And so we have given We have given thought to the fact we're all builders, and we ought to give thought now to the fact upon which foundation are we building. Your Grammy can't build on a foundation for you. Your wife cannot build on a foundation for you. Your school teacher cannot build on a foundation for you. Your youth pastor can't build on a foundation for you or your pastor. Nobody else can build on a foundation except you, and you get to pick your foundation. But by picking your foundation, your foundation picks you. And either with the rock foundation, you'll stand up to life's adversities, or with the sand foundation, you will not stand up. It's that black and white. 
It's that clear cut. And so again, I say it, that Jesus' words turn out to be fork in the road. You can't just hear them and say, oh, those are nice. Jesus' words call us to decision. Jesus' words call us to action. Jesus' words call us to faith, either in him or we pick faith in ourselves. The choice is ours. Everyone is responsible for what they do or don't do with what Jesus has said. And Jesus will be the judge when all is said and done as to whether we did do what he said or we did not do what he said. And so I have been privileged to be a pastor in three countries and four congregations for 32 years. God has been good to me, faithful in every way. It's been a privilege. And I've met a lot of persons. I've met a lot of persons outside of the churches I pastored, and I've met a lot of persons within the churches that I pastored, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And in this period of service as a pastor, I have consistently tried to urge persons in my hearing to take Jesus Christ's words seriously. And I've done this urging over these years in my office, from a pulpit, in private homes, in hospital rooms, in funeral homes, and on street corners, open air, in banks I've done this, in businesses I've done this, in jails I've done this. I've urged anybody that's in front of me that I could possibly urge to take Jesus Christ's words seriously enough to build their lives and their eternities upon the truths of Jesus' words. And what I found out in these pastorates over these years in these countries is that a person's foundation doesn't show when life is rosy. A person's foundation isn't evident when everything's going a person's way. A person's foundation is not revealed in times of blessing. But a person's foundation is revealed in the crises of life. The pressures of life. The losses in life. I've seen over these years in these congregations and in these countries that a person's foundation really comes to light when there's a loss of a job when there's a diagnosis of a serious or even a terminal illness, when there's the death of a spouse or perhaps even harder, the death of a child. These foundations pop their heads up from under the buildings upon which they are sitting when there's a time of financial bankruptcy or business failure when there's clinical depression and anxiety, panic attacks, and when there's, yes, a deathbed. I'll tell you right now, a person lying on a deathbed, if they'll let you talk with them, then you go and you listen. And what you will hear what they say on their deathbed is the foundation of their life. Your foundation and mine will not be made plain when it's easy. Your foundation and mine will be evident when it's not easy, when we can't have a baby, 
that we long to have when it's difficult. And so, as I've ministered to hundreds of people over these years in these countries and in these congregations, and I seek to listen to when they are in crisis, to have more to listen about than to say, and to have a ministry of presence, and then when the time is right, to share the word of God with humility and love. But when I hear that a person's foundation is rock, when a person's foundation is Jesus, when a person's foundation is Jesus' words, as found in Jesus' book, what a relief. But oh, it is so sad. When I've ministered to persons in crisis and their foundation has been laid bare for me to see, some of these are lost people without the Savior, but some of these are saved people who are Christians. How sad it is when you listen in a time of crisis to a person who has a sand foundation for their life, not a rock foundation. The persons with a rock foundation, these are some of the comments I have heard them say to me in the middle of their crises. God is good. I'm calling out to him. Jesus is my everything. I can't, but he can. He will never leave me nor forsake me. I can see that in this is his glory. I'm staying in the word. I find love in my church. God has been so good to me. What a savior. Grace greater than all my sin. All the way my savior leads me. These are comments I've heard from Rockies, <laughs> people whose lives are built on the foundation of the rock of Christ and his word. I think of Fanny Crosby as such a person. She was blinded by a physician's mistake as a child. She wasn't bitter. She went on to write over 8,000 hymns. Her life was on the rock, and she was sweet. In direct contrast, as I've sought to minister to people whose foundations were showing, and I've come to find that they had a sand foundation, I was so concerned for them. And I have heard Sandys, I'll say, Sandys say things like this to me. Why me? I'll take my chances, I'm a good person. God helps those who help themselves. Why do bad things happen to good people? I've done more good than bad. He'll let me in. I'm religious. I'm spiritual. By the way, that's the new smokescreen that we have today. It used to be I'm religious. Now people say I'm spiritual. You better ask them what they mean by that and let them talk. What do you mean you're spiritual? Tell me, I'm interested. And then don't talk. I've never really given a thought. Well, you just told me you're spiritual. I'm dying to know what that means. 
Sandys say, I'm religious. I'm spiritual. There are many paths to God. I don't know what God has against me. If there is a God, why isn't he helping me? I'm a strong person. Weak persons need God. I'm better than so-and-so down the street. I'm not into the Bible or prayer. Or the Christian built on the sand says, I find fault with my church. The Christian built on the rock says, I love my church. The person who's built on the sand says, I find all kinds of faults with my church. The person whose foundation is revealed to be sand in crisis asks, what has the Lord done for me lately? And if Fanny Crosby's song is all the way my Savior leads me, then Frank Sinatra sings for all those on the sound foundation, I did it my way. As busy as Fanny was on the rock of writing hymns that honored and glorified Jesus and fed the church of Christ, Frank Sinatra sold records after records and made multiple millions of dollars, but anyone who knew him and had the courage to say so said he had a violent temper. Some said he was like a Jekyll and a Hyde. Frank Sinatra built on sand, and he was sour. Fanny Crosby built on rock, and she was sweet. And so the question I ask myself, and the question I hope that you would ask yourselves is, what do I say about my circumstances? What comes out of my mouth about what I'm going through, especially when we're going through something hard? What comments do I give myself permission to say? Because those comments reveal our hearts. And We are, we're told in Proverbs, we are what we think, but guess what? What we think, we speak. What you think, long enough, you speak. Same with me. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what do we think about God, especially in times of difficulty and loss and pressure and storms? And what we think about God will be revealed in our comments to other people And I'd just like to say in closing that what you say in passing in crisis will largely be what you'll be saying when you're dying and you know it. If you are built on the rock when things are hard, then what you say will be reflected in that. And when you face death on your deathbed, what you say, still built on the rock, will be reflected in what you say to the persons who come to you on your deathbed to see you. And so we're seeing that Jesus' words are telling. They're demanding. They call to decision and they call to action. They call to choice. Jesus' words about righteousness, he said that righteousness involves the heart and only Jesus Christ can make our heart clean. And if you don't know him as Lord and Savior this morning, I urge you to recognize your own sin debt owed to God and that Jesus died in your place to pay off that sin debt to make you 
right with God and to have God adopt you by grace into his forever family. Make that a decision on Jesus' words if you've never done so. So Jesus' words are telling, they're life-shaping, they're destiny-shaping, and they tell us in this parable that there are two different foundations that are possible for us to build on, and we're all builders. Either the rock of Christ and his words would be our foundation, or the sand of our personal opinions and feelings will be the foundation for the building we do in our lives. One structure will not stand up to hurricanes. The other structure will. And the choice is entirely ours. And there are some born-again Christians who are building on sand. I've met lots of them. All born-again Christians should be building on the rock. And so we thank God for Jesus' words in this parable, and we seek to put it into action. So let's stand together and let's pray. Let these words wash over you again. Jesus' parable of the wise and foolish builders. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand." And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the rock the one who is safe for us to build upon, the one who has only spoken truth in the record of Scripture, and the one who calls us with a warning to build our lives and every aspect of them on himself, Jesus. Lord Jesus, forgive us when we have been enamored by persons who have houses built on the sand when we have admired the house but have not even paid attention to this foundation being so flimsy and precarious. Lord, help us to evaluate our circumstances as we do our building in a proper way. Help us to see your words as more important to us than our necessary food. Help us, Lord Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on you, because not only are you, Lord Jesus, our foundation, but you are our architect. Lord, we would have our houses to stand, not because we want people to be impressed with us in the storm, but we want our houses to stand so we can talk about their foundation. We want our houses to stand so that we can come to persons who are homeless due to their houses collapsing in the hurricane 
and we can tell them about you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for those here today who could testify that in building their houses on the, on the rock, you've never failed them. And they stand today because of you. Lord, help us to be vocal about the blessing of building on the rock of Christ. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake and God's people said, Amen.